Dhamma. So let's go directly to meditation. Please find a comfortable position. Goodness, all these dakinis. Well, one daka. <laughs> one daka. Think there should be one guy here. <laughs> oh, nice. So, for this session, I would invite you simply to practice what is most beneficial. Right. But in the midst of whatever you choose, the respiration, settle your respiration in natural rhythm. If you do that, everything will go well. And if the respiration is not flowing unimpededly, just as if you were deep asleep, just the body breathing, doing just what it needs to do, with no restraint, no inhibition, no forcing, no anxiety, no nothing, just letting the body breathe and releasing all the way out with fearlessness. You know, it really is fearlessness. Because you make yourself so, so vulnerable anyway, giving all your breath away, not even holding on a little, bit, a little tiny bit in reserve, releasing it all. It's a wonderful vulnerability. You know. And then finding, oh, reality's give me another breath. How nice. Thank you. I owe you. <laughs> you know. So it really, it's very powerful. This simple practice, body, speech, and mind, and the natural state, respiration, it's natural rhythm. If you learn how to breathe, everything will go fine. If you haven't learned how to breathe, oh, difficult. Everything will be difficult. Sooner or later, it gets difficult. Okay? So... Within that context, practice whatever you find helpful. And I will just be keeping time. Return to the text. Let's practice right now what is taught for this section, even if it's a little bit above our heads. And that is just sit quietly. In fact, the best approximation of the seven point Varochana posture. Bring your awareness to your eyes, your eyes to space. And simply resting, doing nothing whatsoever. Now, unlike the earlier practice of releasing the mind into space, unlike the practice of settling the mind in this natural state where you 
rest your awareness, your visual gaze, vacantly in the space in front of you. Here you really are bringing your awareness to the visual, the visual into the space. And you are really attending to the space. Not reifying it, not objectifying it, but you are attending to it. Non-conceptually, with your mind non-conceptual and that which you're attending to, also being non-conceptual. This is how the final veils of conceptualization are lifted from your identification of pristine awareness. Releasing any sense of inner and outer, any division between the two. Resting your awareness in space with no border, no center, no periphery. Now let's turn to the text. So I'll read the the last sentence again that I read yesterday. This is on page 178, right in the middle. Padmasambhava cites a text. He says, there is a treatise that states... When meditating, do not meditate on anything at all, for in the absolute space of phenomena there is nothing on which to meditate. So the phrasing is very careful. I try to be quite literal, as literal as I can, when I'm translating from the Tibetan. Nothing on which to meditate. So I look over at Kim, so I can be attending to it, I can be meditating on Kim, which means there's a directionality, right? The same thing, that directionality. I'm attending to someone, you know? So that's how we normally meditate. That's generally what meditation is. What are you meditating on? Or what are you cultivating? I'm cultivating compassion. I'm cultivating bodhicitta. What are you meditating on? I'm meditating on emptiness, on impermanence, what have you. Yeah? You're you're not meditating on anything. There's no trajectory. There's no like that. So in the absolute space of phenomena, emptiness, nirvana, there's nothing on which to meditate. And here's an often quoted uh, classic treatise from the Dzogchen tradition, the all-accomplishing sovereign, Gunje Gyalpo. Gunje Gyalpo is called in Tibetan. One of the major sources. So Padmasambhava cites this text. The all-accomplishing sovereign, by the way, is Samatabhadra. 
You recall one of the texts, one of the citations, I think. Yeah, it was one of the citations, where the speaker is Samadabhadra. He said, I'm the agent of everything. When, when Natu went and got the new medicine for Elizabeth, you might have thought it was Natu, uh, Samadabhadra. Or if you like, Samadabhadri. That's okay. You know, wherever, deep down. This is why it's so interesting in the shamatha without a sign. When you're probing in, who's the agent? When you're releasing and arousing, releasing and arousing. And you raise the question, now somebody's doing this. It's not happening autopilot. It's not a computer. There's someone doing it, right? Must be, because you can stop anytime you like. Or you can say, I don't want to do that. Then you don't do it. So who's doing it? Who is that agent? You can't say there's no agent. If you don't find one, then look harder. There's got to be an agent. Because you decide to do it, then you're doing it. And then you decide not to do it anymore, and then you're not doing it anymore. So there is an agent. But what's the nature of the agent? It's kind of a cool question. Trace it all the way back. Trace it all the way back. Right through your psyche. Right through your sense of identity, which is based upon, imputed upon, this body and mind. Which has its reality. You know, there's Brian over there. He's a medical doctor. He's from England. He has a life story. He has a family. So it's true. But is that the whole truth and nothing but the truth? No. There's a substrate consciousness there. Substrate consciousness is not British. The British Empire was very large, but it never got that far. So there's more than meets the eye. Right? Far more. The depths of Ryan's substrate consciousness blow your mind. How much knowledge, how much experience, how much... How much is there of any sentient being? Brian, Robert, anybody here? If you could see the depth of any person's substrate consciousness, it would make your jaw drop. Like, whoa. And that's just within samsara. You know? So the substrate consciousness, deep down, they get, that's going to be, that's going to be, has to be involved in the agent. After all, that's the one that's accumulating, accruing all the karmic imprints from every voluntary action you engage in, all your memories stored there. That's got to be getting closer to a deeper agent. But then what about if you cut through? You cut through that substrate consciousness. Okay, in other words, you trace it all the way back. You keep on coming. You keep on coming back and breaking through barriers that you're not simply an English person. You're not simply a man. You're not simply this age, that age. That doesn't define you totally. It gets one fragment, one aspect. Keep on pushing through, cutting through, cutting through to deeper level down to the substrate consciousness. Good. Now cut through by releasing and find out who is always the agent. So that's what he's talking about. So discover Samatabhadra by probing in upon the agent. So from the all-accomplishing sovereign, it states, oh, this revelation of myself, well, this myself is Samatabhadra. This revelation of myself, the empty, all-accomplishing one, so if you try to find the real Samadabhadra as some target, some object of the mind, someone who's really there, oh, then you find emptiness, right? Empty, empty of inherent nature. And yet accomplishing everything. So there's this parallel. It's, it's amazing. There's this parallel in just the straight Madhyamaka teachings that all phenomena, all conditioned phenomena, are empty of inherent nature. If you try to find them, you probe them, they, they seem to be there from their own side. I look over at Michael. I can walk over to Michael, wrap him on the knee. Yep, he's there, he's there. Totally appears. 
visually appears. If he speaks, I'll hear his voice. The voice is coming from over there. Then I over and tap him on the knee. Yep, he's there. All the appearances suggesting he's really there from his own side, right? That individual. And then he'll look for where's the individual. And this total not finding, nowhere to be found among his skandhas, among his body, mind, or apart from them. Nowhere to be found. You look for the actual referent of Michael. Nowhere to be found. Not there. And then you can say, well, where's his body? And then you look for that. Nowhere to be found. Where's his mind? Nowhere to be found. I mean, it's empty all the way up and all the way down. And yet, that total unfindability, when you really seek out the nature of the phenomenon as it exists, as it appears to exist from its own side, and you come up with this, just a total not finding, but then a certainty not to be found. Right? That's the really crucial point. It's not just that I can't find it. I found that it's not to be found. I found its absence. I found its absence, and that is that emptiness. So, but here's the remarkable point. So, when Michael, when you look for him, nowhere to be found, a total emptiness. And yet, Michael performs all kinds of activities. Michael's body performs activities, Michael's mind, and so forth. So, totally empty, nowhere to be found, and yet does everything. Everything that, you know, that Michael needs to do, he does. But wait a minute, how can something that's not to be found, that isn't really there from its own side, I mean, they really mean this. It's really not there any more than a dream. If I look over at Michelle in a dream, she's just not there from her side. And yet within the dream, Michelle could cook some tea for Beata, they could have a nice conversation, uh, Michelle could say something very pleasant, Beata, Beata could laugh, and they, have a, and they could plan things together, and they could do things together, and all this causal nexus of activity taking place within the dream. And you collectively, the two of you, you buddies, you could get together and do something together. But wait a minute, how, that's not possible, is it? Because you're not there. It's a dream. There's nobody there at all. And there's a dream. There's nobody there at all either. And yet you are doing all those things. Maybe you started a clinic. Maybe you started a hospital. Maybe you started a Dharma center in the dream. And maybe many people are coming. And they're finding, oh, these, these two together, they really work. It's a great balance. They're teaching so effectively. More and more people coming, getting much benefit. How is that possible? It's not possible. Because it's a dream. And yet, there is causality within the dream. Right? So how about the waking state? This is the thing. This is why Geshe Rapnin, when he was meditating on emptiness, he said, oh, when we're coming to the end of his life story, he said, okay, I've been meditating emptiness. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not talking about it. If I talked about it. Because he knew this was 1972 when there was not much understanding of Madhyamaka philosophy in the West. And he said, you know, if I tell, if I tell, because he knew this was going to be a publication. I was receiving his life story in order to make a book out of it and to publish it. We did. By a very fine English publisher, George Allen and Unwin, I remember. Uh, but he knew where this is going. It's going to the general public. And he said, if I say out loud, reality as I see it, in terms of emptiness, people will think I'm completely crazy. And thus far, they think he's really smart. You know, he's been through all these years of training, Madhyamaka, Prajna, Paramita, Pramanavartika, Vinaya, Abhidhamma, you know, and such great scholar, incredible debater. And then six years, whoa, a yogi, six years in retreat. Then he said, yeah, but I tell them what I'm seeing. And I think that all oh, that was, oh, then you just go cuckoo. That's what you wind up being if you're a geshe and you spend six years in your retreat. Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. You know? So he said, I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> 
How can I tell them? You know, that in fact, waking state has no more reality than a dream state. Oh man, you've been hanging out with those hippies too long. How, much, how, much, how many LSD did tabs did you drop? Who got to you? you know, one, one high too many. You know? So you wouldn't talk about it. Because that's what they're saying. In the waking state, things are no more inherently existent, existent from their own side, than in a dream. In a dream, there is causality. It's not just chaos. You know? And in the waking state, we see, we see this pratita samuppada, much more orderly, much more regular. Laws of physics, laws of biology, and so forth. We see these patterns. We see, outside of science, these... Now, this is where the rubber really hits the road, where it gets really, really intense. Karma. Scientists have been brilliant in finding these regularities, these patterns. They call them laws. Laws of physics, chemistry, and so forth. But the most important laws for us to know about, really, as sentient beings, you can get by and never know Newton's laws and have a very, very rich and good life. Never know about the inverse square law. Never know that falling bodies drop at an accelerating pace. You, know. you can never know that, and you could really do quite okay. You wouldn't be able to build a rocket that goes to the moon, but, you know, worse things have happened than not knowing how to do that. But if you don't know how to navigate in this world as a sentient being, if you don't know the natural laws of karma, if you're clueless, if you think, well, you do what you can get away with. If I can get away with it, then it's good. If I can't get away with it, punished, that's not so good. So if I do things that probably other people wouldn't like, or maybe not so good, maybe dishonest and so forth, and get away with it, it's okay. If I can't, oh, bummer, I have to go get penalized or something. So if one doesn't know the karma, the laws of karma, the nature of karma, it's actually the most important thing for sentient beings to know. If you don't know about emptiness, well, at least you can have a good time in samsara. But if you don't know the laws of karma, if you don't know the consequences, short and long-term consequences of your actions, then that's going to be difficult. Then there'll be no nirvana, but there'll be really rotten samsara. So really, that's kind of the most important thing. Actions and their consequences. Actions and their consequences. Really, maybe the most precious thing. For most sentient beings, because in Tibet, for example, the vast majority of the people there were not yogis. The vast majority were Buddhists, but yogis, forget about it. The vast majority were not accomplished scholars. The vast, most of the monks were not great scholars. Most of the nuns were not really accomplished scholars. They had a lot of them. So not many yogis, not many scholars. Right? But overall, the teachings of karma were out there. And the core teaching, just four laws of karma will do it. I mean, that'll be kind of enough. It's always good to get more detail. But if you basically have that down, then you kind of know how to maneuver in samsara in ways that won't be injurious to yourself and others in the long term. So karma, there's actually no more important teachings. Because here we are in samsara, we're going to be here for a while. And so to make it not miserable, to give ourselves opportunities in this lifetime, future lifetime, those teachings on karma, enormously important. But now we're into causality, of course. Ye dharma hetu prabhava hetum vesham tatakoto yavatat there it was, you know. Core teachings on causality. The causes of causally produce things, the Buddha has revealed. Cause of the cessation, those two, the great sages revealed. That's the teaching of the Buddha. That was it. So that's what that monk told Shariputra. You remember, that's what he, he didn't give him teachings on emptiness or nirvana. He just spoke about causality. 
And that was enough. By way of causality, he realized nirvana. He heard, the, he heard that verse, boom, realized nirvana. That's called a fast learner. No. But there it is. There's the great mystery. And there's the key to the middle way. That these laws of karma are inexorable. Lua mepa. You can't, you can't be so tricky that you can find a loophole. American laws, loopholes all over the place. Probably in most countries. You might find some tricky way to get around taxes or get around this, get around that. There are always loopholes. Karma, no loopholes. Inexorable. You, know, you can be rich or poor. You can have the greatest fleet of vinia lawyers looking for the loopholes. And sorry, there are no loopholes. You know. But there it is. It's so mysterious. It's fascinating, really. That not in the dream here, but now in this waking state and from lifetime to lifetime, these laws of causality, they're invariant. You know, they're across cognitive frames of reference. Not all. Not all. From the perspective of Rikpa, there's no karma. But for us in samsara, Padmasambhava stated this. Very, maybe the most famous quote that he ever stated. He said, although my view is as vast as space when it comes to my conduct, I'm as precise, as fine, as little, what do you say, barley flour, tsampa. So precise. So Eve, there he was, great Dzogchen master. But when it comes to conduct, extremely meticulous, extremely meticulous, virtuous, non-virtuous. One of my favorite stories is Atisha, who is sometimes regarded, many people regard as the speech emanation of Padmasambhava. And he was, when he was traveling around Tibet, there for what? Is it 13 years? 13, something like that. 13 or so. Traveling around Tibet in a caravan, teaching from one place to the next. He, hold, he had the whole caravan, his entourage with him. Who knows how many people. He became very, very famous in Tibet. And he stopped the whole caravan. He said, wait. Stop, everybody, stop. And he was on his horse. He got off his horse. And then he sat down on the ground. And he did mandala offering. One of his attendants gave, well, I don't know exactly what he said, but something like, could not have waited. You know, we were kind of like, we're moving along here, and you stop to do a mandala. I mean, that's very nice, but, you know. And Atisha's response was, well, I had a negative thought. I wanted to purify it immediately. So that's Padmasambhava. You know. That's how seriously these great, great adepts take karma. Now, Zoshan teaching say when it comes to karma, I've seen this multiple times in the Dujum Lingba revelations. As long as you care, here's a very clear criterion, as long as you care whether you have pleasure or pain, as long as it makes any difference to you, whether you have happiness or sorrow, pleasure or pain, as long as you care one way or another, then attend to karma. Attend to karma. Watch your behavior. Conscientiousness. Take seriously the laws of karma for as long as you care. Now, when you get to a point where it's completely taknyam, equal purity, equal purity, whether you're going off to visit one of the hell realms or you're going to a pure land, whatever's most helpful, like Genlam Rimba, when I asked him what, what, you know, where do you want to go in the next lifetime, he said, wherever's most helpful. So he was born in a very poor family in Nepal, but now he's at Sada. But when you're there, this is a very high state of realization in Dzogchen. And it, it is there. It is there. It's way up in Tutgel, 
the direct crossing over, very high realization. But when you get to the point where you really see the equal purity of samsara and nirvana, from the worst of samsara to the best of nirvana, if there's such a thing, and it's equal, when you get to that point where your, your awareness simply is dhammakaya, and you're viewing the non-duality of samsara and nirvana and seeing all of one taste, now you don't have to be careful anymore with respect to your conduct. You don't have to avoid this and cultivate that. You don't have to exert any restraint. But until then, as long as you care about whether you're experiencing joy or sorrow, then Padmasambhava says, all the great teachers say, well, you have to attend to that. But coming back to this central theme, which is so fascinating, here are these, these intractable, powerful patterns, laws, regularities, that's a good word. Engage in this type of action, this will flow. Unless that action, unless the seeds of that action are nullified by some counteractive agent, then they will inevitably ripen, for better or worse. Virtue gives rise to felicity, non-virtue gives rise to adversity. If a seed and action is committed, it will inevitably give rise to its result. Unless it's negated, it will never wear out. It will never kind of like entropy take over and kind of just piddle off on us by itself. It will manifest, it will germinate. It will come to maturation unless it's purified before then. And if you don't commit an action of whatever kind, you will not experience the result of that action, karmically speaking. And then the real clincher here, the real powerful one, the kind of frightening one and thrilling one, if one can be thrilled and frightened at the same time, is that in the natural order of things, it's nature. As you engage in a certain action, it leaves an imprint, a potentiality in your mind stream. By nature, over time, it, its, its power increases. It increases over time. It doesn't just stay stagnant. It increases. So even a small deed, as it germinates, germinates, germinates over time, gives rise to a very large result. So those are the four. That was, like, that was actually right there. But those laws, the actions, actions, if an action isn't really there, if an action doesn't exist by its own inherent nature, I mean really occur, you know, did you imagine it or did it really happen? You know, if actions don't really happen, then how could they have that kind of efficacy? If they're not really there, if you look for them and they're not there at all. And that's it. That's it. That's exactly it. That's the great Madhyamak Koan. And that is that because there is causality, because there's dependent origination, because there are strict laws of causality in nature, whether in the world of science or the world of the Buddha Dharma with, with the laws of karma, because there is strict causality, because of pratitisama, therefore, everything involved in the actions and the, and the fruition of the actions are all empty. It's the, it's the great koan. It's the great, great question. So that was a bit of a tangent, but not so useless, I think. So the empty, I think that was all, yeah, that was all commentary on empty. (laughs) This is the revelation of myself, the empty, all-accomplishing one. So even though empty accomplishes everything, well, but that's true of everything else. Actions, agents, and so forth, empty, and yet doing all stuff, bringing forth results. The human body is unborn. Now, this is Samantavadra speaking. The human body, from the perspective of Rikpa, is unborn. From that perspective, unborn. An ideation, 
composer variation, Namdo, Vikalpa. This is Samadhi. The thoughts, the, the images, and so forth arising, they're nothing other than Samadhi. They're not distractions, they're not obstacles, they're not bache or obstacles. Meditation and non-meditation do not depend on conditions. Again, from this perspective of Rigpa, do not depend on conditions. They're not conditioned. The object of meditation is all phenomena just as they appear. Primordial consciousness of seeing or knowing the full range of phenomena. Without any manner of placing awareness anywhere, just, just like the early example of my placing my attention on Kim. I placed it there, right? Well, that's what we do. That's how, within a dualistic framework of subject not that, that's how we know anything. Observe your awareness. Observe your mind. Observe this. Observe that. We're placing awareness. But now he says, from this perspective, Samadabhadra, without any manner of placing awareness anywhere, letting it be in its own state without modification is meditation. So that's it. That is the practice, really. There's no elaboration on it. When you're practicing at this stage, you've already ascertained rikpa, but still your experience, your realization of rikpa is somewhat still veiled by conceptualization, some subtle degree of grasping. Then this is it. But you'll notice it's not doing something to counteract the, the grasping, because the doing something to counteract the grasping would be grasping. It would be like seeing a dirty pot dirty pot, kind of a dusty pot, let's say a dusty pot, and then getting your, your dust rag out to clean it. But the dust rag is dirtier than the pot. So good intention. But you keep on cleaning it and cleaning it and say, but nothing's happening. Yeah, you're just moving the dust around, adding the dust of your cloth to the dust of the pot. And then you finish and say, oh, nothing happened. That's, what's, that's why the Dzogchen is chadel, free of activity, free of exertion, free of modification. Don't try to fix it. As soon as you try to fix it, you're part of the problem on this level. Okay? So there it is. Without any manner of placing awareness anywhere, letting it be in its own, natu- its own state without modification. That's the chumamepa, without modification, without alteration. That is meditation. And then another citation from the same text. O Hirok Vajra, become acquainted with reality. If the contemplated reality, the mysterious awareness, pristine awareness, does not appear, those who grasp onto and become habituated with words and sounds will not encounter the oral transmission of myself, the all-accomplishing one. So I'm just watching what comes to mind. Not quite finished yet, but one, it's a strong parallel. We see all these wonderful parallels, you know, the spiral. We feel, I think I've been here before, I've been here before, but it keeps on going deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's just come back to settling the mind in its natural state. Or, and I'm citing here Vajra Essence. And it's there in that book, um, Stilling the Mind, it's in the opening section of Vajra Essence. And Padmasambhava, the Lakeborn Vajra, is describing this practice of simply settling the mind in its natural state. But then he gives this list, this uh, daunting list, sometimes terrifying list, of the signs of progress. You know? And one of them is, as you're going deeper, deeper into the practice, you get this antsiness, antsy, like restlessness, like craving coming up. That is, there you are just having all the stuff coming up. And then you can start getting these bright ideas, like 
I think I need to study Abhidharma. Abhidharma, that's what I need. Abhidharma. No, I think I should study Chinese. I've never studied Chinese Buddhism. I think I better study Chinese. No, there's yoga. I, I could study that. Maybe divination, that would be good. Divination, I need to know. And the mind starts thinking, oh, I need this, I need this. Right? I, need to, I need to be anywhere but here. Because <laughs> this is making me really uncomfortable. But if I can just pick up a book, then I know I'm really doing something. I'm learning, I'm getting more knowledge. Or now I'm really getting somewhere. Whereas just sitting here watching what's coming up, I don't think I'm getting anywhere at all. So that's what he's saying here. You know, same thing. And that is just to be present, not try to fix it, not try to augment it. So you're practicing this mysterious, pristine awareness does not appear. You're practicing, practicing, and there you are, just treading water. Maybe in your coarse mind, or just maybe you're just treading water in the substrate consciousness. And you're not cutting through. It's not happening. You're not satisfied. So it doesn't appear. So what do you do? Well, there are those who, there are those who then grasp onto and becoming habituated with words. I know, I'll study all the seven works of Lonchem Rachamba. The seven, now then I'd really know something. These are the masterpieces. This is the pièce de résistance, you know, the great, this great corpus, unbelievable corpus. All really accomplished scholars of Jokshin will have studied that, mastered that. I'm clearly not even remotely like that. But boy, if you've, if you've really understood the seven treasures of Longchenpa, then you really, if you really understood that, you really have understood the Dzogchen view, conceptually. So it's very easy to think, oh, then I'll, I'll get more learning. I think I probably need some more em- empowerments. I think more empowerments, that's what I need, more empowerments. So those who, become habitu- who grasp onto become habitu- habituated with words and sounds, I need more teachings, more teachings, more teachings. They will not encounter the oral transition of myself. Y'all accomplish me, my one, Samatabhadra. You're going backwards again. So, and finally, do not apply your mind to anything. That same point, applying your mind, placing your mind, putting your mind, striving, doing something. Do not apply your mind to anything and do not meditate. And again, it's a simple theme. theme. Do not, even in the most benevolent, virtuous, wise, and compassionate way, activate your sense of identity as a sentient being. Don't do it. Don't go back there, even as a very virtuous sentient being, a bodhisattva sentient being. If you're coming back there, that's fine, but then you've just, you're not, like, you're not practicing Dzogchen anymore. If you're identifying yourself as a sentient being and thinking, there's something I need to do to achieve enlightenment, that's fine. That's called the causal vehicle. Good, then go practice stage regeneration, completion, go back and do lamri, meditate on emptiness, whatever. If that's your platform, then of course there's a lot you need to do because you've identified yourself as a sentient being. Right? But this, one, this phase of practice means just turn off the switch of anything, any impulse coming from the sense of identity as a sentient being. And therefore, don't do anything at all as a sentient being. And that includes, and actually most important, don't meditate. Don't now do something in order to achieve enlightenment. Don't do, I mean, really, that's pretty drastic. Don't do anything to 
achieve enlightenment. The most core thing would be in meditation, right? Well, don't do that. And let alone, oh, I think I should need to go off and do some circumambulations, more prostrations. I think I need to do more chanting, more mantras, more visualization. That's fine. They're all good. But then you're not doing Dzogchen anymore. Okay? So it's just releasing. Do not do anything. Do not meditate. And then he continues. Do not modify. Don't try to fix, change, alter, improve your body's speech or mind. But let them loose. Simply release them. You've heard this before. Again, Padmasambhava, Lakeborn Vajra, Vajra Essence. Release your body like a corpse in a charnel ground. Release your speech like a lute on which the strings have been cut. And release your mind into Dharmakaya with no activity whatsoever. And that's the fastest way for the pranas to come through the central channel, into the heart chakra, into the indestructible bindu, and to realize Dharmakaya. That's the easiest way, fastest way, most direct way. You know, that's what he's saying here. Don't try to fix anything. Don't try to improve your body. Don't try to speak better. Don't try to think better thoughts. Don't try to alter the mind in any way so whatsoever. Just, you've seen that one before. Just release it. And let them rangdel. Let them release themselves. Let them awaken themselves. So, without, and this is a very Tibetan statement here, Indian and Tibetan, I'm sure, without regard for the planets, constellations, lunar date or time. Do not engage your mind and be free of mantras and mudras. So with, without regard for the, the uh, planets, constellations, lunar date and time and so forth, this is very much part of Tibetan culture, and I assume, but don't know, it's also very much part of classical Indian Buddhist culture as well. And that is, if you could do something really significant, let's say you're about to start to establish a new monastery, or get married, or do something really significant in your life, start a retreat, whatever it may be, then very commonly, traditional Tibetans will then consult an astrologer who has the ephemeris for the whole year and say, oh, right, I want to enter a retreat at such and such a time in the near future. When would be an auspicious day to start? It's a big question. It's not trivial, and they do not take it lightly. When's the, I would like to go on pilgrimage to India. I'd like to do such and such. I'd like to start my training as a geshe. I'd like to do this. I'd like to take ordination. I'd like to whatever. You know, It's a big deal. Then they'll commonly say, well, when's an auspicious date? How about the constellations? How about the planets? What lunar date? Should I do it on the, on the new moon day, the full moon? Should I do it on Dakini day? When should I do it for it to be most auspicious so that the, the outer circumstances are most conducive to the realization, the fulfillment of your aspirations? Very much including establishing new dharma centers, for example. Yeah? You want to know when is the time ripe? Right? Well, he says, don't do that. For Dzogchen. For Dzogchen, forget about it. No auspicious time. No inauspicious time. Uh, no time. Right? Because that's it. This rikpa. When you're truly dwelling in rikpa, it's in the fourth time. It's in the fourth time. Permeating the three times, but it's in the fourth time, which is timeless. So, without regard for them, do not engage your mind. You've heard that many times. And then, mantras and mudras. I mean, these are saturating all of Tibetan Buddhism. From Omani Pemehung, when you're two years old, to doing the wide array of mudras, of the state of regeneration, and so forth. The many, many practices that entail doing. Most practices entail doing. But in this phase of the practice, and it's very, very important. I've emphasized this before. This is a phase of practice. 
in this phase of practice, release all activity. The mudras, the mantras, the visualizations, all of that. And uh, in the most sublime possible way, do nothing at all without activating your sense of being a sentient being. Simply be the all-accomplishing sovereign, Samadhabhadra. Just be. Until that kind of just comes and completely suffuses you and in a way incinerates incinerates all the residue of conceptions, basically conceptions and grasping. So that's a little bit of that. So that's what he had to say. This is uh, the final bardo that we'll be looking into for these eight weeks. And that, that's what he had to say about the meditation. There's not much to it. And there are no different ways of doing it. <laughs> There's no variations on not doing so, so that's that. And then he's going to go into, well, now what about the practice in the post-meditative state when you're not formally in session? And this is where, just to highlight this point a little bit, then we'll have a bit of time for question and answer. This triad, it runs through all of Buddhism. Uh, and sometimes it's very well emphasized and sometimes really quite overlooked, especially in the popularization of Buddhism. And I don't say that derogatively. Like, it's a bad thing to popularize Buddhism. It's a good thing to try to make Buddhist ideas, even if it's only an idea here or there. Buddhist practices, even if it's only a practice here or there. It's a wonderful thing to make that as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. So they get some benefit. Some benefit. That's good. You know, so even its own little fragment here, little fragment there, if that can be helpful, that's fantastic. You know. But when it comes to following a path to liberation, to awakening, then then you're looking at something more than a view here and a practice there. What you always have, whether you're following Shravakayana, you're following the Bodhisattvayana, following Dzogchen, whatever you, you always have this triad. The triad, just the more I've, I've reflected on it over decades now, seems to be enormously important. And it's very simple to say in Tibetan, Ta Ta That's the view. Not to be mistaken with a mere belief system. Not just some bunch of stuff. I believe that Jupiter has moons. So what? I'm not viewing it that way. I'm not, I don't, I'm not walking around with a telescope to say, oh yeah, there's the moons. It's just something I believe. I believe that there are exoplanets. That's what the scientists say. I believe them. They have very good technology. I believe now there are, I thought it before, but now I believe more certainly, because there's good evidence behind it, there are planets around other stars all over, the, all over the universe. It doesn't really alter my view of anything. But I also believe I'm going to die. Oh, now that's actually more than a belief. I knew that already. But knowing you're going to die and actually viewing your existence as if you're mortal, that's very different. Viewing all of your relationships, everything, personal relationships, acquisitions, your place in society, and so forth, and seeing all of this is going to fall away. Every single thing. Every person you encounter, parting. Everything you acquire, you're going to lose. Everything is born, going to die. Every time you're elevated, you're going to fall. And saying, wow, in every direction, that's a these are universal truths. That kind of takes all the fun out of samsara. Because <laughs> you're looking at a no-win, no-win, no-win in every direction, no-win game. Whatever you acquire, you're going to lose it. And then you go into a spin cycle. And you're going to try it over again and over again. Groundhog Day, which has gone cosmological. 
the same old, same old, same old. And the worst part of it is we don't learn from our mistakes. Doggone, every kind of, every baby, almost every baby comes up and says, what? What? Wow. Not a clue of all the stuff that was learned, all the mistakes made, all the correct things done in the past life, let alone before that. Each time coming in clueless. That's why they're so keen in the Tibetan tradition. When the tuku comes in, they look for the tukus to make sure, well, at least you, at least you are going to get a teacher. We can't find a superb teacher for everybody, but those prodigies coming in, those people with a lot of momentum, we just don't want to waste you. You are our, our prime commodity, our most precious resource in Tibetan culture. Frankly, it's true. It's their tukus. Their yaks are pretty cool, but that's not the prime. You know? It's the tukus are the most precious commodity in Tibetan culture. And you take care of them. Because if you don't take care of them, there's no guarantee they'll really turn out well. Sometimes they don't. When, they're not, when, they, when they try to use them too early, try to get them teaching, when they start get pr- praising them and you know, throwing all kinds of stuff at them, wealth and fame and reputation and so forth, sometimes it doesn't work out well. But there it is. A bit of a tangent, that one. Remember where I was coming from? What's that? Oh, the triad, thank you. Yeah, the triad, that's kind of important. <laughs> the view. How are you viewing reality? So there's this Ravakayana view. It's powerful. It's incredibly powerful. It's deep. It's rock solid. It's very rational. Talk about logic. It's got adamantine logic to it. And there's this Shravakayana view. There's a Shravakayana meditation to go together with the aspiration. What's this all about? What are you doing this for? So I put the meditation and aspirations values together, very much together. And then there's a way of life. If you're following Shravakayana, what is the suitable way of life? What's the conducive way of life to support your meditative practice, to support your values, and to support a deepening of you? So viewing reality, yanda pitawa, with an authentic way of viewing reality within that context. Well, it's a package deal. If you're really following the Shravakayana yana, this yana, this path to liberation as an arhat, then the view is absolutely indispensable. To think you can just do this with just mindfulness or a couple of techniques, forget about it. Forget about it. Notion of secular Buddhism to achieve arhatship, ridiculous. Absurd. So you've got to have the view. It doesn't mean indoctrination, but you have to be seeing things correctly, authentically. But then that's not enough. You need to support that view with meditation. But that's not enough. Your whole way of life has to be conducive to, supportive of your meditative practice. And now you see this synergy that the view is informing meditation, meditation is informing conduct, medit- conduct informing meditation, meditation informing and deepening your view. But they're all, it's all synthetic, that is, it's all integrated, a synthesis. They all permeate each other, they all reinforce each other. It's very powerful. Right? Same, th- same is true for Mayana, the Bodhisattva that perfection of wisdom, that's your view. That's basically the view right there, perfection of wisdom, right? And then your meditation, your values, well, that's bodhicitta. And every type of med- and then the six paramitas and so forth, all the meditation, it's right there, but it's saturated by the view. Right? And then you have a whole way of life, a whole way of life that is supporting essentially your meditation and your cultivation of ultimate and relative bodhicitta. But your whole way of life is to support that. But once again, each of these supporting, saturating, enriching, and empowering each of the other two. Take one out, it's almost like a, tri- like a tripod again. That kind of tripod of you know the inform, the information, and the informata. Take out one, the other two vanish. That's kind of true. 
Mayana, take out the view. The other two aren't there anymore. How can you have bodhicitta and not have the view? Dumb bodhicitta, I think, is an oxymoron. And, so, and how, can you, how can you be following the, the bodhisattva path if your whole bodhisattva way of life is not a bodhisattva way of life? Then you don't have the other two either. So they're completely tied in. You know. And then just finishing off here, Dzogchen, the same thing. Uh, I think there's a lot of decontextualization for popularization. When people have weekend Dzogchen retreat, some, I mean, sometimes it's, ta- it's taught beautifully. I don't mean to criticize that as such. There's nothing wrong with giving a Dzogchen retreat for a weekend. But if it's taught authentically, it has to entail all three. Not just, okay, now, open presence. Everybody ready for open presence? Um, you know. So that's it. So the Dzogchen view, Dzogchen meditation, non-meditation, Dzogchen way of life. Well, we're about to go to Dzogchen way of life. What do you do in between sessions? Because now you're really a Dzogchen practitioner. The way of viewing reality is the Dzogchen view. Your meditation is non-meditation. What do you do when you're off the cushion? How is your way of life different since you're a Dzogchen practitioner as opposed to a bodhisattva or a shravaka or a person just trying to make the best of samsara? So the three together. And that goes for materialism. Just very briefly, but you have a materialistic worldview. It's a way of viewing reality. And then you have hedonic ideals and your meditation is probably working really hard. And then you have a way of life that is consumer-driven, produce as much, consume as much as you can. And so those three, materialistic worldview, hedonic values, and a consumer-driven way of life, they totally support each other. They're three pals. They totally support each other. Each one enriching, reinforcing, empowering the other one. It's a package deal. Take out one of those and the whole thing starts to crumble a bit. But get your good, solid materialistic worldview in there. I'm a brain. Everything boils down to matter and immersion properties of matter. There's nothing outside of matter. I got it. I'm looking at, there's a brain, there's a brain, I'm a brain. Everything in matter. If this is a good, chunky world, I feel comfortable. And therefore, what do I value? Stuff that comes out of matter. Matter and emergent properties of matter. That's all that counts, that's all that exists. Therefore, that's what my values are. I value what I think is real. Material stuff and the emergent properties. And that includes music, literature, all those nice hedonic pleasures. The goodies of samsara. And the way of life is, well, work and entertainment. Pretty much it boils down to that. Work hard, and then play hard. And eat, drink, and marry before eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And don't think about that. Be happy. Ignore the future. Be like an animal. Don't think about death. It'll ruin your day. So each of these is a package deal. They come totally integrated. And the notion of taking a piece from one and putting it into the other is like taking a goldfish out of a goldfish bowl and putting it into a pot of acid. Uh, it's not going to work out. It's going to work out anyway. So that's it. Hola, so I said there'd be twenty question and answer. It keeps on dwindling, but a really juicy one, and it has to pertain to the teachings. Anything coming up? Yes, go ahead, Emir. Not quite. Okay, so I have two quick ones. Yeah. Um, first of all, how different does the posture have to be when one is falling asleep and one realizes, okay, I'm going to fall asleep, I'm in the supine. How different does it have to be because you mentioned that? I just missed that. Supine how? When I'm falling asleep in the supine. Yeah. Relaxing, breathing. Yeah. Um, and then I feel, okay, I'm getting woozy. Yeah. 
I'm definitely going to fall asleep soon, yeah. and then I change my posture. How Good. different does the posture have to be? That's the first question. It can even be symbolic. It's even be symbolic. Uh, this is just, now this is my interpretation. I'm not citing in some text here. Um, but I'm strongly emphasizing here a, a point that I think is very important, and that is when you're formally adopting the Shavasana, right? that you're doing this, you, you adopt that posture only when you're meditating or completing a set of yoga asanas. But it's a formal, it's a formal posture, just like doing the exact perfect seven-point varochana posture. And you never do it anything else. And then by doing that, by always being practicing when you're in that posture, it's going to be set up a whole association, a Pavlovian response. You know, oh, I must be meditating. I, I, I can't just be lying here. And so that's why I say that. You know? Because we do have, I just spoke with someone today, and finding, you know, going in the supine position, it makes one drowsy. Well, sure it has. It's decades of habituation to that. When you lie down, it's not to do something difficult, to use your mind in a strenuous way. It's to relax, space out, fall asleep, daydream. So that's that. But now imagine, for example, that you really generally sleep best on your back. Some people sleep really well on the, on the back. Some people don't. But imagine that's really how you wind, usually wind up. When you're sleeping, you're on your back. Uh, and that's where you like maybe to drift off. You're getting woozy in meditation, and you really like to sleep now. So what to do? And if you'd like to be in the supine, because you can always roll over, and then that's no problem. So I would suggest this. Something symbolic. So the way I was taught the Shavasana, um, I it's not the best way, it's just what I was taught from Iyengar, palms up. If you have, and we do have room in the bed here, 30, 30 degrees out from, this, out from the torso, palms up. That's, so I just practice that. I'm, sh I'm sure there are other ways that are just as good, but why not? I have no reason to not follow my teacher, and that was Iyengar. So if that's what you've done, if, if you're doing, you're 30 degrees out, palms up, and you're really feeling rosy, then okay, my session just is coming to an end. So turn your hands down. So now you're not in your posture anymore. Now you're just lying on your back. Okay, something symbolic, and that's a nice one. Just, just invert your hands. Go ahead. Um, you halfway answered my second question, which is how important is it that the palms are up? Because for me, that's not that comfortable then, to have the, comp, the palms up. Then I actually like them better the second way that you just did. Like yes. Then what I would suggest, number one, VKS uh, Iyengar, at a very ripe old age, he just passed away just recently. You know? But I don't think his ghost will haunt you if you, you know, is it what happened to my lineage that Alan Wallace, he screwed up again. I don't think it's a problem there. So um, that has to be one of the more minor things. Have you ever heard, Kim, of anybody really screwing up in yoga because they had the palms down in Shavasana? Um, it's actually a function of the shoulders. Yeah. And if the shoulders are forced forward, it's going to make it uncomfortable for the shoulders. Okay, it's going to work better for helping the rib cage. Yeah, let's have that on, on the Everybody Podcast. Thank you. Because uh, Kim is a very experienced professional yoga teacher. Once again, well, please. One way to help make the hands more comfortable in Shavasana is to check the rib cage and make sure that the rib cage is open. Because if it's not, the shoulders will be forced forward, and that will make it uncomfortable to open the hands. So, but if a person, for whatever reason, uh, practice Shavasana with the palms down, serious consequences? Very serious. Yeah. No enlightenment, yeah? <laughs> could be, you could get by. No, could get I've, by, yeah. I've not heard of anything. Yeah, nor have I. So, but, uh, but actually what Kim said, that's what I actually heard from my teacher. And I'm not, even, I'm not even a yoga teacher, let alone an accomplished one.
But yeah, it does have, it's, I'm not just going to say what she said, it does have a reason for that. Uh, so if you can learn how to do that to be actually comfortable, following exactly what Kim said, uh, then that would be good. And if you can't, then, but again, one way or another, do, th- do something symbolic so that you're, telling, you're sending a signal, you're sending a body signal to your mind, I'm no longer in the posture. Right? So, for example, Iyengar, when he teaches Shavasana, you have your, you, you have your of course, everything straight as an arrow. That's crucial. But now you have your, you'll have your, your heels almost touching, either touching or just very close. And then the feet drop to the sides. That's the way I was taught. Right? Well, let's imagine that, let's imagine that one way or another you've dealt with the hands. And, but now you're ready to go to sleep. Right? Just open your legs a bit, like six inches. Then you're not in the posture. Right? Something different. So that now, that's, okay, this, this one, oh, this is fine for daydreaming, falling asleep, what have you. It's not the posture. Right? It's, it's clearly psychological. But it's actually importantly, um, importantly psychological. And especially to come over, for many of us, you're not that old, but for people my age, this is decades, if you've not been meditating for a long time, decades of habituation. You lie down, that's, that's to space out, get drowsy, fall asleep, you know, daydream, and so forth. Really strong habituation. And it's all by association. There's nothing in that posture that should make us drowsy. But by association, yeah. Hola, so... Oh, go ahead, Kim. So you mentioned, you touched on something um, that came up for me today about this um, Dzogchen view. Yeah. And when we're, when we're practicing or, or attempting to practice with a Dzogchen view, um, and we're, we're coming back to essentially nothing. Uh, the Dzogchen view is nothing? Okay, I, I'm not going to try and... Um, what I'm understanding from what we just... Uh, read that we come back to no, not doing anything. That's that's not view. That's practice. Okay, okay. So how, if I have, for those of us who have not yet ascertained Rigpa, how do we practice Dzogchen? Samadhi without a sign. Thank you. <laughs> practice that without the Dzogchen view, and it's a very, very powerful, deeply transformative, and revelatory practice for fathoming the nature of your substrate consciousness, which is kind of a big deal, you know. Uh, and the more, and having said that, Padmasambhava, you might recall, earlier on he said, some people will be introduced to the view first, the Kempos and so forth and so on, who'll spend 9, 10, 11, 12 years doing that, studying all seven works of Longjamba, Ranjamba, and so forth, and the Guyagarbha Tantra and the commentaries and so forth, and they really will develop a rich, very textured, uh, understanding of the Dzogchen view. And they may do it for years. Right? And then they may go off for a retreat and go into meditation and achieve shamatha and break through to you know, Vipassana and so forth. And so, forth. so there's that approach. And he acknowledges that. And so it is the Pinchin Rinpoche in his classic text on Mahamudra. He said there's that approach. And it's an approach followed by many. But there's another approach and that is we go for the meditation first and the view comes out of your meditation. And Padmasambhava and the Penjanabhaji, who is also regarded as speech emanation of Padmasambhava, they both say, my approach is the second one. Go into the practice. Just go right into the practice. You know, do whatever preliminary is needed. Very important, but do whatever is needed. And then go right into the practice, into shamatha. 
and settle your mind. They say, settle your mind in a meditative equipoise. Settle your mind in a natural state. And then from that perspective, from that, from that avenue, from your practice, then you may cut right through the substrate consciousness. And out of that practice comes rikpa, and out of rikpa comes the view. As soon as you've identified your own face as rikpa, and your, your view is the view from rikpa, then that's it. You, then you've got the view from the inside. Right? So that's, that's a possibility. And that's what he's teaching. The Padmasambhava says, that's my approach. Benjamin Rinpoche says, that's my approach. So go right into the Dzogchen. But again, it's very helpful to season your meditation, kind of a, a context, that you're not doing this totally isolated from the Dzogchen teachings. Some introduction, like what we have here. So even though it's not gotten, you know, it's not sunk right down to your core, you've not realized Rikpa, the seeds are there. It's like your mind is a field, and we're just sowing a whole bunch of seeds. And then with devotion, your, your, the, the, the field has mulch, it has fertilizer, it's warm, it's, it's moist, it's fertile. And just throw in some more seeds, you know, throw in some more seeds. And then the supplications, the guru yoga, the devotions, and all of that. That's more mulch, more, more, more moisture, more warmth, and so forth. And then now watch the seeds come. You know. And so even when, while you're doing, doing the shamatha without a sign, for example, uh, while you're doing that, you're not thinking about Dzogchen. If you are, then you're not doing the practice. You're not doing Dzogchen, and you're not doing the, the shamatha without a sign, either one. You're just sit, sitting there thinking about the Dzogchen view and the Dzogchen teachings you've heard, which is fine, but it's neither fish nor fowl. It's neither the view nor is it the meditation. It's, it's reflection, it's hearing, it's thinking. There's this nice phrase in Tibetan. It's, uh, it comes up in multiple c- contexts. And that is, if, you have, if you've developed bodhicitta, and then you engage in a certain action, then you say, that your action, whether it's following the breath, or going off and helping in a hospice, helping the elderly or something, uh, that the outer, the outer, outer activity, look, well, that's very nice of you. That was, that was, a, that was a kind act. But if you're doing that motivated by bodhicitta, then that simple act of helping someone you know, in, the, in, the, in a retirement home or what have you, it's imbued with bodhicitta because of motivation. So what you're doing is no different than anybody else in the hospice. And they may be just doing it for salary. Got to have a job that's not a bad job, not too hard. And you're doing it. But, so you're, your activity is entirely different because your activity is imbued with the bodhicitta. So, and then likewise, yandapitawe zimba, you may engage in a certain practice where you have some understanding, your mind has been seeded with some understanding, at least some understanding of the middle way view, perfection of wisdom. And then that's imbued. So even though you're not thinking about it, it's imbued. It's kind of it's percolating in through the back door. So if you're doing that shamatha without a sign, and you've drunk it in as much as you can, the teachings of dream yoga, searching for the mind, identifying awareness, and here there's Dzogchen, really bona fide texture practice. If you just heard those, and they're kind of swirling around there, someplace in, the, in some, some dimension of your mind, then even though manifestly, explicitly, what you're doing is just shamat without a sign, nevertheless, to some extent, it's imbued with whatever understanding you have of the Dzogchen view, and that will lead you, that will unconsciously, and it will kind of feel like blessing, perhaps. Uh, it will take you into it. Final one. Would I necessarily know if I slipped into the Dzogchen meditation? Yeah. 
Nobody realizes Rigpa without knowing it. Now, having said that, there are people who think they've realized Rigpa and haven't. So there's a certain asymmetry there. But yeah, when you tap into Rigpa, it'll let you know. Very good. Enjoy your evening.